1: Weird news. Fresh views. Helpful clues and interviews.
0: By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to The Short Coat, a podcast of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. It's a beautiful day in medical education. The birds are singing, the bees are buzzing, the phones of the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion are stridently ringing. Uh, But it's calm here in the SCP studio, thanks to my co-hosts, including in the form of ones and zeros. M3, Emma Barr.
2: Hello.
0: Uh, a I more understand
2: the joke, though.
0: It's all right. It's, a, it's an inside joke. <laughs> uh, we, we need not mention it any further, lest I somehow find myself on the public dole. Uh, that's all I'll say. Um, uh, oh, yeah. A more corporeal uh, M2, Bryn Myers, is here.
1: Hello. Uh,
0: and Greta Becker is in the flesh today. Hi, guys. She's brought her flesh. Thank you for bringing (laughs) your flesh. But if you sensed additional ones and zeros on today's show, that's because we're joined by Tanya Jenkins, assistant professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and author of Doctors' Orders, The Making of Status Hierarchies in an Elite Profession. Uh, published by Columbia University Press hello professor Jenkins
3: hi thank you for having me
0: do people address you as professor Jenkins
3: they do uh, I've been I've been called other things as well but professor Jenkins works or Tanya works well as well
0: all right I'm gonna go with Tanya because I'm I'm not a I'm not a very professional person and I, I uh, we know uh, yeah thank you
1: <laughs>
2: thank
0: you so um, Tanya, our show is named The Short Coat, and it's named that because um, the medical students wear a waist-length white coat that they must wear in the clinic, um, and which some students see as a symbol of their relatively lower position on the status hierarchy that exists in academic medicine uh, than their professors who wear knee-length coats. So, you know, I I thought it would be good to have you on the show to talk about these status hierarchies and and the sorts of things that you have... um, Uh, discussed in your book. Uh, You looked at internal medicine residents at two hospitals, Legacy Mm -hmm. and Stonewood, uh, which despite being in the same specialty, experience very different environments and philosophy. So what specifically were you looking at?
3: Yeah, uh, I was particularly interested in a phenomenon that emerged early on in my fieldwork. I started collecting data at uh, what I call uh, Legacy Community Hospital. It's a, a pseudonym. This is a small community hospital, um, and uh, I initially set out to actually study the practice of pimping. So I was really interested, right, in yeah. um, this practice I had read about, um, and so
0: this is the practice of this. Uh, is the practice of. Sometimes people say it's an acronym for put in my place, but it's a it's the practice of. Um, basically asking questions, maybe hostile questions, to uh, medical students and residents in in order to, uh, you know, it, ostensibly teach them. But some people think it's to uh, basically reinforce the hierarchy.
3: Yeah, there's definitely a power dynamic behind pimping, right? It's not just your usual t- teaching. It, there's there's a, oftentimes an impetus towards humiliation in the practice. And so um, I had read about this in other... Um, sorry, in, in other areas of, uh, in other books that I had read, and um, really got interested in trying to observe this for myself. And it was it, as early as my first day in the field at, at Legacy Community Hospital that somebody told me, you know, this doesn't really happen here. The kind of pimping you're looking for doesn't really happen here. And so I did what any good researcher should do when um, she goes to the field and doesn't find what she's looking for. I, I promptly freaked out, um, <laughs> thinking, you know, this is what I was expecting to find. I'm not finding it. And post freak out, it took me, you know, a little bit of time to sort of um, take a step back and ask myself, well, what makes Legacy different than some of these other university hospitals that I had read about? Um, so, first, of course, Legacy was a community hospital. Um, it was a smaller hospital. It was affiliated on paper to a medical school that was located out of state. So, um, the trainees at this hospital actually had very little contact with attending physicians from their medical school. Um, but it, it took kind of an embarrassingly long time to dawn on me uh, that. There wasn't a single U.S. medical graduate, allopathic medical graduate, on the three-year categorical house staff.
1: Hmm.
3: Um, part of the reason why it took me that long is that I'm originally from Canada, and so um, so first of all, DOs are not a thing in Canada. I didn't really know what the difference was, um, and there were a lot of Americans on the house staff, but none of them went to medical school in So. A puzzle started to form for me. Where are all the U.S. grads? Why are none of them here at this small community hospital? And um, I sort of zoomed out even further and realized that, uh, you know, Stonewood University Hospital, um, located in the same general area, had the opposite picture. The house staff was staffed exclusively with U.S. MDs. What I call U.S. MDs. So, what I was looking at in these two hospitals was why there is such segregation between these two programs in terms of the composition of the house staff, and then what the impact of that segregation is on their training um, and their mobility within the profession moving forward after residency.
0: So, what did you... Uh, I don't want to get too, too close to the end of the book, but what, what did you, what, what did you find was the difference?
3: Well, there were a lot of differences uh, between the two programs. Uh, you know, one thing that that these two hospitals prompted me to do was actually take even a, a larger step back and take a look at the broader composition of residency programs across the country. Because um, one of the comments I was getting was, or one of the questions I was facing is, well, how typical are these two hospitals, right? Are they actually quite typical of uh, the broader graduate medical education landscape in the U.S., or are they just kind of two weird uh, one-off cases? Yeah,
0: you happen to pick some weird hospitals.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, of course, that's that's an empirical question. And so, um, so with some colleagues, and this was a, a study that we published um, earlier this year in the, the Journal of uh, General Internal Medicine, and with some colleagues, we actually collected some data on all 520 Five internal medicine residency programs across the country. And we actually found that these two hospitals were quite typical. So, um, nationwide, 37% of all internal medicine um, uh, university based uh, training programs staff 90% or more USMDs. And then, nationwide, 51% of all community programs staff less than 10%. USMDs. Um, so in fact, what we have is this sort of bimodal distribution of programs um, along the lines of USMD and what I call non-USMD status. And, and so I'm I'm grouping um, a heterogeneous group of, of trainees to be sure, but I'm grouping international medical graduates, both US citizen and non-US citizen together with DOs um, under the umbrella of non-USMDs. And so what I found was that yeah no these two hospitals were not unique in any way. In fact, if I had found a more integrated set of hospitals to study, um, they would have been in in sort of they would have been the exceptions. There are only about sixteen percent of training programs across the country that staff more or less equal numbers of USMDs and non-USMDs. And you know one one question to ask is well so what uh, who cares right. Um, Non-USMDs train in community programs and USMDs train in university programs. If the training they're getting in in these two places is more or less equal, we shouldn't really care so much what kind of programs they're training in. Um, And of course, you know, my findings in the book reveal that that the training looked quite different in these two programs. Um, The community hospital was far less well-resourced than the university hospital. Um, the opportunities available to residents in terms of professional development, opportunities for mentorship, opportunities for research were quite severely limited, which of course then went on to shape their, um, their career pathways moving forward in the profession. Um, something that I found really interesting was if, you, if we look at the NRMP, the, the National Resident Matching Program, um, statistics for fellowship they're still reported along the lines of USMD status and non-USMD status. And so if you look at, I just, you know, the latest round of match statistics for fellowships. They're reported for U.S. grads, and then there's also this other category for independent applicants, which includes um, graduates of uh, DO programs as well as international medical graduates. And so what I find is that, and that's sort of, it comes up in the match data for fellowship is that where you go to medical school actually continues to impact. Your career, even moving forward into the match for fellowship, I'm
4: I'm just a second year, so I'm not super familiar with how the match, the whole match process goes. But um, you mentioned that it's kind of developed into a more like objective process, and I'm just I'm interested to know like what changes they've made because there's striking statistics that if you are a DO or an international grad, you are much less likely to match into residency. Um, so, I'm just curious where you think that is coming from in the application process.
3: Where I think the, the lower match rates are coming
4: from? Yeah, like is, do, is this like a point-based system? Because I'm guessing they don't get fewer points because they're out of, you know, um, they were trained somewhere else. So, this bias is coming from somewhere. I'm curious, do you think it's in the interview or or just looking at the name of the school? Making judgments off that?
3: Yeah, good question. Well, again, I, you know, the, the two hospitals that I studied closely are the, are the two hospitals that I can speak to. Um, I would imagine similar processes may be happening at other hospitals across the country, but um, in terms of the data that I collected at these two places, they went about residency recruitment very differently. Um, the large university hospital, um, well, I should start out by saying actually that the, the 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 answer to your question is not self-selection. It's not that DOs and international grads were not applying to the large university, Stonewood Hospital that I studied. Right. Um, in fact, two-thirds of all applicants uh, were DOs and um, international medical graduates of some variety. Uh, same with uh, with the smaller community hospitals. So it's not simply a matter of self-selection. It's not just that certain types of graduates only apply to certain types of hospitals. Um, the large university hospital um, received several thousand applications every year, two-thirds of which came from international osteopathic medical graduates. Um, and that particular program um in order to help whittle down these thousands and thousands of applications down to a more manageable number to uh interview had the practice of excluding uh, and discarding without review every single application from an osteopathic or international medical graduate um, with a a handful of exceptions we're talking less than one percent of exceptions um So and a large part of chapter two of my book actually wrestles with this question of, you know, how do these programs become so segregated from the from the resident residency program perspectives? Um, And, you know, there were there were various justifications offered for that rather uh, drastic choice to discard from consideration osteopathic and medical and international medical graduates. Part of it, obviously, you know, there's there there are limited time and resources, right? And so, and that's true of any program anywhere at any time. No one has unlimited time and resources to to sort through these applications. Um, a large part of the the justification came from um, sort of having more familiarity with U.S. schools and having um, concerns about risk regarding international and osteopathic medical graduates what was interesting was that the risk was slightly different for these different types of residents so or or prospective residents um the concern about recruiting international or u.s international medical graduates and DOs. so we're talking uh caribbean students and osteopathic students the concern there more had to do with um, concerns about medical knowledge right we Um, don't
0: know what the curriculum is like there
3: yeah
0: it's not um it's not accredited by the double and the various accredited or the LCME and the various accreditation bodies.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And so there were concerns about, because of sort of the unknowns related to that kind of training, um, concerns about whether or not these residents would be able to have the, the requisite medical knowledge needed in order to succeed as a resident in the program. Um, the other set of concerns in some ways were, uh, were more concerning, and that was um, a concern about professionalism. And that, disproportion- that concern disproportionately um, was attributed to international medical graduates. Um, There were concerns about sort of the fluidity with American patients, being able to sort of um, to interact well with American patients um, and have the kind of cultural competency that was expected of physicians at that at that hospital.
0: Which is really Uh, interesting, by the way, because you know USMDs are supposed to have uh, that's one of the core competencies is uh, cultural. Mm-hmm. In, in nature. And so, you know, USMDs are expected to have that sort of cultural competency. Um, but apparently we can't trust the foreign medical graduates to have that same competency. But
1: well, you'd, you'd almost think that it would be like a strength of theirs. Like they might well. have a broader background and especially in relation to medicine. Like if you're coming from an area that has more experience with infectious yeah. disease and that sort of thing, like yeah. you're well, able to bring more to the table than someone who
4: I I, mean, I I was under the impression that that's, isn't that why we have step 2 CS? So, so that everyone can demonstrate their clinical skills, their communication skills. Um, yeah. So, just having that test should, you know, that's what that's for. That should make it, I don't know.
0: The thing about the, the thing about these, this situation and, 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 and Tanya, you can. With whatever knowledge you have, you can correct me if I'm wrong. The thing about this situation is that there are so many applicants for so few positions that I think what happens is, and this is true of you know step one scores, for instance, the certain things stand in as, I don't know, proxies um, that help you establish some sort of artificial cutoff for the number right. of people that you have to interview. And, and you kind of implied this before.
3: That's what I was saying. You know, limited time and resources, that is absolutely, absolutely the case, right? Uh, I mean, it would know, be great if they would def- choose
0: another metric <laughs> that actually, and this was true for step one scores. Mm-hmm. Um,
3: so, and that's, that's what I point out. I mean, so just to um, the earlier point about Cultural competency. This particular hospital, Stonewood University Hospital, was in a refugee catchment area and had actually quite uh, quite a diverse patient population. So there is something to be said for having a diverse house staff um, with that kind of broad broad base of cultural competency to to um, to, to attend to those patients. But um, I, I think you you raise an excellent point about CS, and uh, I raised the same point in the book about um, step two clinical skills as being you know, at least some measure, maybe an imperfect measure to be sure, but some measure of um, the ability of a trainee to be able to communicate with patients and, and, um, and, and demonstrate those clinical skills. The same is true of, um, of step one and step two CK, um, clinical knowledge. To measure some of the medical knowledge of international and osteopathic graduates, that um, I mentioned earlier that the concern for DOs and Caribbean grads was that they don't have enough medical knowledge to be able to succeed, Um, again, those tests are imperfect, but they are somewhat designed to measure um, the amount of of medical knowledge that a trainee has. so you know what I point out in the book is that if if the concern was um, you know was was exclusively about ensuring enough medical knowledge and ensuring clinical skills, there are other metrics, other heuristics that could have been used by the program directors to to sort through those thousands of applications. There has to be some sorting, um, but you know I think I think either these exams didn't measure what uh what the program administrators were looking for or and i think there's also definitely and this is the argument i put forth in the book there's also a third risk that is a little bit more subtle less sort of openly spoken about but the risk to the program's reputation that is playing a big role and the way it was explained to me at stonewood is that it's very much perceived to be a badge of honor for a program to recruit um, as many USMDs as possible, and you know, I, I I point out in again this is chapter two, but you know, it's what's strange is that residency programs are unlike medical schools universities, restaurants, they're unranked. There's no formal ranking of residency programs. And so instead, everything is kind of relying on um, sort of informal reputations, right, and word of mouth. And recruitment is one of the few ways that programs can build up through reputation. and, And it's one of the ways that programs are judged. Um, vis-a-vis their peers. And so Stonewood, um, you know, it was a program that was, it wasn't a top, 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 top program. It wasn't a Hopkins or a Stanford kind of program. Um, it also wasn't a, a, a lower tier program. Um, the way it was described to me as was, it was kind of a bottom of the top tier, maybe top of the second tier kind of program. It was a program that was trying to raise its status. And so it was perhaps all the more conscious um, or or sensitive to outside perceptions and of keeping that status, uh, you know, as positive as possible, as as protected as possible by almost exclusively recruiting um, USMDs. Mm
2: It's interesting hearing you talk about recruitment. I had an experience a couple of weeks ago, I'm um, doing my rotations um, in Des Moines where we can like rotate at five different community hospitals um, and kind of compare our experiences back at the University of Iowa. Um, I was on one rotation and I overheard an attending talking to a resident and it was like totally an earshot. I wasn't like eavesdropping or something. And they were talking about sure how-
0: Sure you weren't, <laughs> Emma. You know, Emma, how... Emma, she looks sweet, but she's sneaky.
2: Um, they were talking about, so we had um, DO students Um, rotating with us and MD students and the attending was telling the resident like, oh, we have the DO students go with this attending and the MD students go with this attending because we heavily recruit the DO students and we want them with this attending. And so it's almost like a backwards type thing. Like they don't, they're not trying to recruit us because they know that we're not going to come there for residency. I mean, like I, I like community programs, so I'm not sure about that, but um, it's just interesting how they're kind of playing the game with quotes too, that they're accepting, like, we're not going to get MDs, but we can like focus on getting D, like good DOs
0: or something like that. Well, the the thing that I it, um, noticed before that you said was that you know this wasn't a an issue of self selection, and I think what you meant was this wasn't an issue of self selection on the part of the non U.S. MDs, but right. it's certainly well. I I would think that it would be an issue of selection on the part of the US MDs choosing these, you know, sort of less community hospitals to apply to and thus giving those hospitals a. you know, th- thus giving those hospitals an out for, for having to select uh, non-USMDs. Do you know what I'm saying? Did I, did I make myself clear there? I don't know.
3: Yeah, no, yeah, no. So so that's really interesting. I think it takes me then to the case of Legacy Community Hospital and its recruitment practices. So to be sure, there were a, a, a substantial portion of applicants uh, or of, of applications coming from USMDs. And part of that, I think, has to do with... Um, there have been some some pieces in the, the med-ed literature recently about this, um, you know, residency applicant fever, right? That the number of applications mm. of uh, to residency, excuse me, per uh, per USMD has risen dramatically over
0: yes. the last-
3: a uh, couple of decades, and so there were USMDs applying to this program. Mm-hmm. Part of that had to do with the fact that you know it was in a, a reasonably desirable location, right? Um, and so you know, I think uh, I think you're right that that there weren't there were certainly not as many proportion wise applying to uh, to Legacy as there were non usmds applying to Stonewood. Um, but the legacy program had a, a, a sort of a tight rope to walk. Um, on the one hand, it too was very aware of its status position in the broader field of residency programs. Um, by all accounts, including from its own residents, uh, it was sort of a firmly a tier three kind of program, a third tier program. Um, it was staffed exclusively by non-USMDs. It had very limited service offerings. Uh, There was no interventional cath lab, for example. Um, And and then medical school was far away. And so uh, the hospital was aware of this and tried to increase its status. And what was really interesting is that as many as half of all interviews were aff- afforded to or were offered to USMDs mm. at the hospital. As many as half. Something that angered a lot of the residents uh, who were non-USMDs, they said, you know, these US guys are not gonna come here and it's a waste of time to interview them. But the program very much was hoping to actually be able to recruit even one or two would be, you know, a success for the program. At the same time, it also realized that, as you point out, Dave, that there, there there is a self-selection effect. And the match goes both ways. It's not just about a program ranking a candidate highly. The candidate has to match that program highly, too. Right. And so if it decided to rank only USMDs highly, it ran a much bigger risk, not of losing not only of losing program status, but of actually not filling its ranks, which would have been a worse outcome for the program. And so, kind of like what Emma was describing, the the, the program actually decided if it can't recruit uh, high numbers or any number of USMDs to its categorical program, it could sort of go to the next best thing. Uh, it could still try to Americanize. The residency program by bringing in, and, and in this case, they thought that you know doing so would be by bringing in Caribbean graduates, so U.S. citizens who had gone to the Caribbean to study, get their MDs. Um, So by making the program seem more American by recruiting more U.S. IMGs, um, they felt that that was sort of the best possible outcome for them to be able to eventually recruit more Americans into the program as opposed to more international graduates. Um, And so what we end up with is a dynamic that promotes, you know, complete polarization, right? There's a program, they're both actually quite concerned about their statuses. But in one case, Stonewood is is eager to, you know, to keep as many U.S. USMDs on the house staff as possible, um, and in in the process actually ends up excluding huge spots of applicants, some of whom might have actually been better qualified yeah. than than the USMDs. I mean, I mentioned that they spoke about risk, um, but their their aversion to risk was actually quite selective. There were some USMDs that they interviewed and ranked highly and matched to the program that were quite risky, from both uh, medical knowledge and. Professionalism standpoint. Some of them had failed the boards. Um, one of them had a criminal record. And so, when when concerns about professionalism and and uh, medical knowledge were raised as sort of a justification for uh, for reducing or, or for for sorting through different uh, different applicants in different ways, that justification wasn't applied evenly across um, across statuses. Mm-hmm.
1: I was wondering, do any of the residency programs actually have like formal guidelines saying that they're only going to admit like 10% or whatever the number would be of international applicants? Because I was even comparing it to like here at Carver, uh, we accept I think like one third of our class is out of state and two thirds is in state. And yes, we hold the out of state students to higher standards for admissions, but like it's very open. You know, like they know that they might have to get a higher MCAT score or whatnot, and so. In this process it seems like that's much more fuzzy and like do these international applicants have this like false sense that oh we're going to get into Hopkins or Mass General and really they end up at the community hospital?
3: This is an excellent question. So to the best of my knowledge and if anybody out there knows differently please get in touch with me because i have yet to find any kind of formal guidelines of any kind um that you know i've, I've not seen a program that has a quota saying that we will accept a quarter international grads or we will uh i get even to see a program that explicitly states that it will give priority to usmds um so no, there there are no, to my knowledge, there are no formal guidelines that require programs to stick to quotas or that um, you know where programs are openly advertising themselves as uh, you know restricting their search to certain kinds of applicants for certain proportions of their of their spots. Um, and it, it to me it actually brings up a really interesting counterexample or, or counterfactual. If we look at other countries and how they do this a little bit differently. Um, the, the case of Australia is one that stands out to me. It's another country that, is, uh, that, that receives a lot of applications for residency from folks that are uh, trained internationally. But there, the rules of the game are, are written quite clearly. Um, if you apply to residency in Australia and did not get your medical degree in either Australia or New Zealand, you are given the lowest possible priority categorization. You're given priority seven out of seven. And, um, and so when you go to Australia and you apply to, to go to residency there, you go in with the full understanding that you are probably going to end up in the outback somewhere in a specialty that uh, Australians and New Zealanders aren't, aren't really interested in filling. Um, the same sort of, uh, the same clear rules are not articulated in the U S. And so what I found, and, and I discussed this in chapter six of the book that really asks the question, how does this system perpetuate itself? Um, you know, what I found was that there is very much a belief, especially among, I found this to be, especially true among the Caribbean graduates. There's very much a belief in the power of hard work and dedication. And that with enough hard work and dedication, anything is possible, including a residency position at uh, Mass General or, um, or a residency position in ENT or dermatology for an international medical graduate. Um, and, you know, of course, there's also a sense of it's very unlikely, but there's, there's still very much this hope. And the corollary to that I found was that if, if a, an applicant wasn't able to achieve those types of positions. I, had, I spoke to several internal medicine residents at uh, Legacy Community Hospital who wanted to go into surgery, who wanted to go into anesthesia and we're not able to accede to those types of positions. The corollary was if you didn't get it it's because you didn't work hard enough and you didn't want it enough and they very much blamed themselves. When in fact I think you know this, it's a very American dream kind of belief and what I try to do in the book is sort of shed light on some of what sociologists would call the structural factors, right? The system type factors that are very informal but that actually constrain mobility within the profession, quite importantly.
0: I need to take a break because I uh, I need to tell people the people about our Exam in Life conference, which is going on right now. Um, even as we speak, our 14th annual Exam in Life conference has begun and will continue throughout October and November of 2020. All the sessions are virtual. There's 27 presentations on everything from from, uh, investigating polio stories to using traditional dance uh, to narrate stories of women in medicine, writing workshops, um, all kinds of stuff. Um, Head on over to examinedlifeconference.com. You can design your personal schedule with our a la carte pricing. Most sessions are 15 bucks. uh, And we also have some really cool longer format workshops uh, you can take advantage of to build your skills and your enjoyment of life. Examinedlifeconference.com. Uh, is where you can find that. Um, I wanted, so, so you, uh, were kind enough to join, uh, Kate DeCherry for a class a few weeks ago. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, uh, these guys are so awesome. I, you know, like, I'm going to embarrass you guys, but, uh, my feeling about these guys is that they're so thoughtful and so intelligent and so, um, engaged and it's really, it's really a lot of fun. Anyway, part of that discussion, I wanted to sort of see if we could talk about it here, was about the other kinds of hierarchies that exist
1: mm-hmm.
0: in medicine. Um, uh, did you did, w- what kinds of hierarchies have you guys, all three of you, all four of you, excuse me, observed um, in your time uh, in medicine and medical education and studying um, medical education?
4: Gosh, we're still, well, <laughs> Greta and I are still in didactic, so I think we, we've been shielded from a lot of it, but Emma is right now in her core year, so
2: you'll have to tell us how that's yeah. going. I was working with a doctor who, he was just saying something like, um, NPs or PAs, they're stealing our patients and they're like gaining too much power. And I was just like, Oh, we're going like, to talk
0: about this in a minute.
2: <laughs> they, ha- they have a similar, but like almost the same, you know, ish role as you. Um, I don't feel like it should be a competition. Like you're both trying to give, you know, good patient care and like you may have more training, but it doesn't mean they can't do like other things that you know, they are trained to do.
0: Well, you have in fact preempted our listener question, which we're going to oh, get good. to. I was,
2: I was going to say like, isn't this a problem
4: is like, we don't have enough doctors. We're too busy. We're seeing too many patients per day.
0: Look, we you, we have to save this for the listener question. Oh, sorry, <laughs> You're stealing the thunder. What in the world, Emma? Is I'm it sorry, my I'm fault that I, another. is it my fault that I completely didn't share with you? The fact that we had this listener question. Is it my fault? Quite it possibly. may be. In May, it absolutely is. Um, anyway, um, we had
1: the director. I don't know Mike Edmund. He's like the director of safety or something at the hospital, and uh, he's an infectious disease doctor. And he was telling us like when he's on service, he has um, nurses, med students, residents address him by Mike, um, just because he finds like you know when you're in high stakes scenarios, like if people can, everyone can refer to each other by their first name, they feel much more comfortable calling him out. Um, um, and I, I don't know. I love that. I don't know if it actually ever happens, but I know for me, it would make me feel like so much better if I could be on a first name basis with everyone around me.
0: That's very interesting because the word hierarchy for me carries some pretty strong negative connotations. Do you, do you, uh, would you agree with that assessment, um, Tanya?
3: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, Studies hierarchies. I think they're not inherently evil. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I think I think it's the sort of thing where, in in certain cases, right, there's a for, you know sometimes there are formal hierarchies that are designed to either break up tasks, right? And, and really constitute a division of labor kind of hierarchy. Um, and you know, in some ways that kind of hierarchy makes a lot of sense, right? We want the, you know, the, the person who has the best training and the most experience to be the leader in a particular situation to then be sort of taking on a different, uh, be able to sort of, uh, delegate different roles to different people.
0: Yeah. Some um, of them are legal in nature, right? I mean, the, the, they are. Yeah. Yeah,
3: they are right, and so you know there are formal hierarchies uh, among so not only physicians, but then as we've as, as Emma just mentioned, between clinicians, physicians as as clinicians, but also advanced practice clinicians, um, nurses, right, um, nursing aides, auxiliary workers, that sort of thing. Um and again I think that they serve a purpose. I think um I think where hierarchy can become problematic is that there are always power dynamics involved in a hierarchy by definition, right? Power flows from top to bottom by definition in a hierarchy. And, and sometimes that is, like you said, legally sanctioned and makes a lot of sense. And other times it's more arbitrary and can lead to power imbalances and eventually discrimination and subordination.
0: Do you remember we talked about the chair hierarchy in, um, in the class. We did
3: talk about, yeah, we talked about an example of a, an informal hierarchy in, in medicine during Kate's class, but um, the chair hierarchy. So, you know, I don't know how many of you uh, in the audience or, or as students, right, have uh, been on rounds or have been observing and definitely it's the highest rank in the room that gets the chair um, and usually it's the the medical student who gets you know no chair because there's none left um, I can assure you that the hospital ethnographer comes after the medical student <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> in the hierarchy. Um, but you know but there are other hierarchies that are you know that's kind of a, a joke but but you know, we can think about racial and gender hierarchies mm-hmm. in medicine, which, which um, are another example. And that's a case where the you know who is in power is in some ways arbitrary, based on arbitrary characteristics. But the consequences of that power are quite uh, quite important for those that are, especially on um, what you know at any point in, in time of that hierarchy. And so. Um, I think that's something to always keep in mind, that hierarchy is always about power. That's by definition what a hierarchy is. And in some cases, that makes a lot of sense. And in other cases, it's completely arbitrary, and um, that has very real consequences for those involved.
0: then let's, uh, let's address that listener question. Um, because it sort of gets to some of that, the things that we talked about, the, the listener has to be anonymous. So I will refer to as a uh, glistener rump glisten rumpy bottom just because I can. Um, so here is her. Question.
1: Hi, Short Coats. I have a question for you today, but first just want to thank you for making this podcast. It's really informative and helpful and also just really fun to listen to. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, my question today is about mid-level autonomy. So I understand and really appreciate that PAs and NPs are essential components of the healthcare team and they can provide great care to patients. However, they don't have the same education as a physician, and I've heard that there might be some questions about patient safety when, you know, these mid-levels are allowed to practice without supervision in some states. I'm curious to hear what you think about PAs and NPs having increasingly more autonomy in medicine, what you think that means for future physicians, and more generally, what that means for healthcare as a whole. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for uh, sending in your your question. Um, What do we think about this? I think Mo started to think about this already.
2: <laughs> well, I think that, I mean, I think I've worked with a lot of PAs and nurse practitioners when I was a scribe. Um, and I think they did a you know, perfectly good job of taking care of patients in a primary care setting. That's what I viewed them in. Um, but I did notice that there was some difference in like when I would work with MDs or DOs that they had a little bit different approach about how they go about their differential diagnosis and kind of Sometimes, not all the time, i a little bit more thorough in that. Um, I also kind of think about, um, like me, w- at Cover College of Medicine, we do our first year and a half of didactics with PA students. Um, and then we kind of split off, and MD students do two and a half more years of clinical rotations, and the PA students, I think, do about a year, a little bit more of a year. Um, And I'm like almost to that point um, coming up to a year of clinical rotations and I cannot see myself going out and practicing on my own right now. Like I would not feel comfortable with that. But that's partly like my um, my personality and how I like to go about things. um, But I think that I would feel confident in my classmates who um, I've seen them reach out when they need help and are confident in their ability to do things. Um, Not that confidence is all about it, but. yeah, I think that it's definitely a teamwork thing and that PAs and nurse practitioners have to be aware of like what is their level of comfort in doing things and their like legal abilities, so yeah.
4: Yeah, I I have so many thoughts about this and my mom is a PA and my dad's a doctor, my so. My dad's a PA. Yeah, so I I like think very highly of PAs and NPs and I think that they're absolutely essential for our medical system and.
0: And they give good hugs.
4: Yeah, it, I mean, it's <laughs> my, my doctor growing up or my um, provider was a PA and she's excellent. And um, I kind of like think about it the way, I mean, a couple weeks ago, we had someone on um, the podcast who was talking about how physicians are spending hours and hours on the EMR um, when that that could be delegated to someone um, like a medical scribe who has um, less training and then the doctor's time is better used elsewhere. Um, so I think you can apply that in this situation where there are certainly, um, there are cases that can be delegated to different members of the care team, nurses, nurse practitioners, um, and PAs. And if, if something is so complex that we need a specialist or someone with um, extra years, fellowship training, stuff like that, then you can get them involved. But that, that's why our system works so well is it's team-based. It's not just one person um, attacking a problem. Even doctors rely on one another um, when they're doing patient care. So, yeah, I, I, I get so discouraged when I hear stories like the doctor's getting mad that the, the PAs yeah. are taking their patients because really um, you are a team and we're benefiting people by doing that. So.
0: And, you know, we yeah. should distinguish. Um, but J- uh, uh, Jessica DeHaan uh, is a PA who is getting her MD now. She's an, an M2, right? Mm-hmm. M2? Yeah. M2. Yeah. Um, And she pointed out in our uh, co-host chat that, uh, you know, PAs aren't really, PAs can't practice on their own.
1: Right, true. They
0: have to, they, you know, they're supposed to be supervised by physicians. Um, In some states now, nurse practitioners can practice on their own. Um, So that's kind of a distinction that one should make between the two kinds of, or Two of the kinds of mid-level mid-level providers, um, but there are some impacts on safety. Um, for instance, a couple of findings that Aj Chowdhury pointed out um, in that same discussion uh, was that you know uh, compared with dermatologists, um, PAs perform more skin biopsies per case of skin cancer diagnosed and diagnose fewer melanomas in C two. Um, so that maybe there's a diagnostic accuracy. Issue there, um, or non-physician clinicians were more likely to prescribe antibiotics than practicing physicians in outpatient settings, and resident physicians were less likely to prescribe antibiotics, um, which speaks towards the issue of antibiotic resistance and overuse of antibiotics. Um, the AMA um, uh, is opposed to um, allowing NPs to uh, independently pra- uh, independently practice. Um, there is a statement that came out uh, this in september of this year um where they you know they basically came out against a plan in california to allow nurse practitioners to independently practice to expand access in rural areas and decrease overall costs they argued they won't do those things um and other states that allow this haven't seen nps move to rural areas for instance oregon being the one that they mentioned specifically and um you know as i said above some studies show it will decrease patient safety um Although I can't really attest to the design of those studies, or you know how well they were, how well they were actually done. Do
1: you know where Iowa stands on like nurse practitioners practicing by themselves? Because I, know I that, do not. Okay, even my nurse practitioner here at Iowa, who is like my general care provider, whenever I go to her, she always starts by saying like if there if anything ever comes up that. Um, I feel like is out of the realm of my practice. Like, this is the physician that I would refer to you.
0: And to. I think probably, my guess is that probably most, that I, that a competent uh, mid-level provider would be sure to be careful not to go outside their scope of practice. And mm-hmm. I mean, that would just not be a good idea.
4: No. Yeah. I just, I, I've noticed something in, already in, like, my classmates and I, um, and we're not even doctors yet, but there's this tendency to believe that because it was so hard to get here, um, that is medical school, we, it has to be this hard to get here. And it has to be this hard to be a doctor. Um, and we have to be cream of the crop, smartest people. Um, and I just, I, it might be an unpopular belief, but I do not think that's true. I think there are many more people who could be doctors and are getting rejected from medical mm-hmm. schools um, and it's just like this this thing that happens after you get in that you're like, oh, well, it has to be this hard. Um, but I, I don't know. But you could bring up patient safety, but I think there's systems you can put in place. Um, to to help with patient safety, I don't know. <laughs> How do you dare you, think? Bryn? I don't know. I just like have so many of thoughts. In. Like, it can't. Like, it's not. You don't have to be an amazing person at physics to be a great family doctor. <laughs> but unfortunately, if you're not great at physics, you might not yeah. be able to be a doctor. You know. So, like, physics sucks. Yeah, or like O chem, <laughs> or you know. I just get so angry. Like, that it doesn't well, again, have it's to the, be it's the this need way.
0: It's the need to. I don't know. Like. What whittle whittle down the field in some arbitrary way?
1: Doctors, like I just I can't. I know this gets me so upset. I mean, it could also probably be seen the opposite way too. Like, there's so many bright people who go into medicine because it's seen as like the most promising thing they can do with their career, and they got the highest grades in their class. Um, When, like you were saying, there's probably plenty of people who intrinsically want it more than them, but can't even get there in the first place. And there's so much. Uh, beyond just
4: pure knowledge that makes a great physician. I'd argue other things matter a lot more. And so... Gosh, I
3: just yeah. Well, one thing I think um, is is clear, and the the AAMC has for years now been sort of trying to sound the alarm that there's a massive shortage of of physicians nationwide. I think the latest numbers are about 140,000, um, and a good chunk of those are in primary care, and a lot of advanced practice providers are actually providing care in primary care, which is an area that we not only don't have enough physicians in, but that I mean, I think this speaks a little bit to what you were saying earlier that, that I mean, just uh, there isn't a huge demand, especially among USMDs to enter into those fields.
0: Yeah. Um, and I there's just, also, there's also the, the, the conflict between, you know, what we say we want and what we actually see, you know, what we actually do, for instance, oh, we want more doctors. We want more primary care providers. Well, the logical thing to do is to increase the size of training programs on a national level. Um, and if you don't, you know, listeners, if you don't know, those much of that budget for nat for residency training comes from um, the government in in Medicare. I always confuse them, Medicare, <laughs> right? Um, and so it's up to Congress to increase the number of the increase the amount of training. Um, and so there's a disconnect there.
3: There is, yeah, um, and you know. Even before you get to residency, um, you know one of the things I point out in my book is that dating back to the advent of modern residency training um, in the 1950s, this has been true every single year since the 1950s, the number of USMDs graduating from US allopathic medical schools vastly is lower than the number of residency positions available.
0: Um, I, didn't, I didn't know it went back that far.
3: Across the board, since 1950, there's been anywhere between 25 and 40% more residency positions than there are US grads. So yeah. um, if we look at just 2020 match statistics, there were about 4,100 USMDs that applied to internal medicine, for example, to fill 8,600. Positions. If every single one of them had matched, of course, there are DOs as well that are not included in those numbers, but there would still be positions left over. And so, um, this is actually something I've I've touched on in a, a different article. But um, I look at this puzzle of how is it that since the 1950s, the U.S. medical profession has so vastly underproduced or undershot the number of physicians needed to fill residency positions, and. I think part of it has to do with a kind of degree rationing, right? A kind of actually underproducing physicians to keep them special and rare Mm -hmm. and in high demand. Um, which so sounds like guarantees. a
0: conspiracy theory. <laughs> <of> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, well, I mean, you know, the, the AMA coming out and saying, you know, we don't want nurse practitioners to be to be able to do the same things. We we are. I mean, it kind of makes sense for them to do that. They are the body that is responsible for protecting the interests of um, MDS, basically, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, the professional um, body. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And they know that they have these international. Uh, applicants that they can slot into these lower level spots, which is circling back to what we've been discussing. Wow. Exactly.
0: Um, yeah. Uh, Glisten's use of the phrase future of physicians, I think, is striking um, because it, it makes me think there is a concern there that physicians might in some way be diminished um, if mid-levels are allowed to flourish, that it's a zero-sum game um, in that sense. Um, and you know, if that is her concern, I don't know if that's her actual, if that's her real personal concern. But um, to the extent that that is a concern for physicians, um, I I think as Bryn implied, I don't think I don't think it's a zero sum game at this point. But um, it's it's awfully tough when politi- politicians and the people with the power of the purse aren't paying attention to the problem, as they mm-hmm. don't seem to be. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so when we're looking at a question like this, like like uh, Glisten's question. Um, how are we to? How would you, as a sociologist, determine whether discussion is really about things like safety and the patient experience, or if it's motivated by this uh, concern for territorialism and hierarchy?
3: It's a good question, and I I don't think it's a black and white issue. I think the same you know the two two things can be true at the same time. There may well be concerns about patient safety. I'm not I'm not up on that data, and I'm sure it exists, and I'm sure there are people that are um, paying close attention to those data trends and, and will continue to. Uh, in some ways, it's an empirical question, right? Uh, that's an, That part of it is an empirical question. Are there safety trends that we ought to be paying attention to? Um, there may well be, and there may also be concerns about protecting the broader profession. And I think it reminds me of the same kinds of concerns that I heard in my fieldwork about the ability for international medical graduates to provide as good care as USMDs. And uh, that data has been produced and has been uh, unequivocal since the 1960s. There have been large and small studies since the 1960s that find that international medical graduates perform as well or actually outperform USMDs when it comes to patient outcomes. There was a very large study that came out of um, Harvard. I want to say it was in 2017 or 2018 in um, the British Medical Journal that looked at um, big Medicare data so it was a big data study with 1.2 million cases or something like that, and they the study compared hospitalists um, and their patient outcomes and found that international medical graduates actually had better patient outcomes mm-hmm. on average than USMDs. So you know, in, in this case, it isn't actually a question of, are USMDs better than or worse, than, you know, are, are, are international grads worse than USMDs? The data doesn't bear that out. And so that's where I think there's actually quite a lot of evidence of concern for protecting the inner core of the US medical profession that is constituted by USMDs. Um, I think when it comes to, to parsing out the question with mid-level providers, you'd have to look at the data. And even if there is data to show that there are patient concerns, Um, it still does not sort of uh, mean that there aren't also concerns about protecting the inner core of the profession, which by the way, I mean, those efforts have existed as long as the profession itself has existed, Mm -hmm. right? Um, The AMA as a body, uh, you know, uh, representing the medical profession has been very effective at securing a monopoly over Um, the provision of medical services, and it's a legal monopoly. We talked about legal hierarchies a moment ago. This is a monopoly that is granted to them by law to be the sole sort of custodians over medical care and who can provide medical care. And so it's not surprising at all to see the American Medical Association being very sort of Uh, very cautious about who's allowed to do what and how much of their jurisdiction, as sociologists would call it, are they willing to sort of cede to alternative providers?
4: Up till now, we've we've talked about um, differences that DOs um, and international grads have um, in in terms of getting residency positions. And so if you were a listener who wasn't very familiar with DOs, you would assume that, well, DOs and MDs are quite different because they're treated quite differently. Um, Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that our education is very, very similar. Um, the the two studies originally were were quite different um, in philosophy, but now you know we have D.O.s use pharmaceuticals and M.D.s see their patients as whole people holistically, um, and D.O.s have extra training um, about 200 hours, I think, extra training. Um, but I, I my question in a very long-winded way, is do you think there is a future in which we just merge these programs and then offer additional osteopathic training? Um, for everybody, or no? Well,
3: in some ways, my answer is the future is now. So, as of 2020, there are um, you know the, the uh, American uh, osteopathic, uh, the American College of Osteopathic Medicine, um, ACOM, American Association of Colleges of Osteopathic Medicine. There, I got it. I got it right. Finally, <laughs> good job. Uh, has, has joined forces with the ACGME, the uh, Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, such that now all residency programs are jointly Accredited by both bodies, um, there used to be for many, many years, decades, uh, a century, um, DO only programs that would train exclusively um, osteopathic medical graduates, and then you know, DOs were um, were welcome to apply in in most cases to the ACGME accredited or MD programs. Um, You know, as a rule, they were generally allowed to apply. A lot of programs, like uh, I mentioned, some of these university programs might not actually systematically consider them. Um, But now that distinction has disappeared, and so now all programs are kind of open widely to both groups of, uh, of, 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 um, of students and applicants. You know, one one concern that so on the one hand, I think that's that's great. I think that hopefully, I would actually advocate that there is good. Um, good evidence to show that um, desegregating residency training and actually moving towards more mixed programs would be a good thing. Um, there's a study that found that USMDs are less likely, these are fully trained attending physician USMDs, they're less likely to refer their patients uh, as primary care providers to specialists that are international medical graduates. This was a vignette study and they modified the vignettes so that You know, in some cases, the IMG was actually better qualified than a USMD colleague, and the USMD primary care provider would still refer their patients to the less qualified USMD colleague. So uh, there was another study similar in the US South that found that. You know, MDs that spent more time with DOs actually held them in higher esteem and had better opinions and fewer stereotypes, negative stereotypes about DOs. So I actually think that there's good reason to bring these folks together and to have them train alongside each other. Uh, One concern that the joint accreditation uh, system raises for me is that, you know, previously there were maybe, I don't know, Two or three DO dermatology programs across the country. There weren't very many, but there were DO-only dermatology programs across the country. Mm-hmm. Now that they're open to all, it remains to be seen whether DOs will continue to sort of dominate in those programs, or whether they will actually become more mixed. In which case, we might see actually a decrease in the number of subspecialty uh, DO trainees that are able to actually get into these harder to to achieve specialties. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think we need to be careful that, like, we aren't. Well, we want to treat them the same. We don't assume that a DO like wanted to be an MD and is on this path because of it because they didn't get in into any MD schools. I think like statistics show that a lot of DOs, the majority of DOs, wanted to be DOs because they still are interested in that um, holistic medicine. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, Doctor Jenkins. But
3: no, that was right. Um, I think uh, at least half of my sample of DOs that I interviewed um, only applied to DO schools, only wanted to go to DOs. There were a handful that applied to MDs and and, um, chose DO as a kind of fallback option, but it most certainly was not a rule. It wasn't um, the only reason why people go to DO school.
2: Yeah. And just like I said earlier, I've worked with a lot of DO students in my rotations and I've seen them like do the OMM on, on like each other when they're having you know some sort of pain or something. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool. I wish I could do that. So, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not that they didn't get into MD
3: school. But.
0: Well, I think I need to end this, much as I would like to One more question. Oh, for God's sake.
3: (laughs) I'm sorry.
2: Um, So, Dr. Jenkins, for me, I read like 95% of my books as audiobooks read, as with quotes. Um, So I was wondering, is your book going to be available as an audiobook at some point?
3: Yes, thank you for asking, Emma. I'm super excited. The book has been optioned as an audiobook, uh, and I've been told it's going to happen at some point in the next year. Okay. Not sure exactly when, but as soon as it is available, I will let you all know, and you can yes. listen to it on audiobook. Yeah, great. Awesome. Thank you.
2: That might be helpful for some of our listeners if they're also. Yeah. Red,
0: read by Morgan Freeman, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, that's our show. Uh, Tanya Jenkins, how can people find out more about you and your book?
3: And they can go to my website at www.tanyajenkins.com. That's Tanya with an I, T-A-N-I-A, Jenkins.com. Um, you can also uh, look me up at my uh, UNC sociology webpage. Um, or you can send me an email, Tanya, T-A-N-I-A, dot Jenkins J-E-N-K-I-N-S, at UNC, as in University of North Carolina, dot edu.
0: Uh, well, great. Thank you um, for for joining us today. I appreciate it.
3: Thank you so thank you. much for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure chatting with you all.
0: And thank you, Greta, Bryn, Emma, for being your usual super cool selves <laughs> and, uh, you know, joining us for this conversation. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thanks for being thank you, Dave. You.
0: And well, wh- <laughs> thank you. Finally.
1: We appreciate you. And what
0: kind of host would I be if I didn't thank you shortcodes for making us a part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, subscribe to our show wherever fine podcasts are available. I remind you that your questions are vital to the show because they mean uh, it can be what you want it to be about. Be like uh, Glissom Bottom or whatever I called her, uh, <laughs> and send your questions or comments to the shortcoats at gmail.com or you can leave a message at 347-short-CT. We'll talk about it on the show. While your podcast app is open, we hope you'll be the kind of listener we've always been grateful for. Give us some stars and a review to let us know if we're doing this podcast thing correctly. Thank you. Uh, The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine student government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week.